Holy cat. Hey. It's almost... Yeah. Almost a perfect... It is. It's round. We finally got one. We found a flying saucer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Atomic Age SaucerCast. My name is Jerry, and joining me, as always, is Court Psyops, a.k.a. the Holy Cat. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, by holy, do you mean I have a lot of holes in me? Because that I can see. Otherwise, I'm very unholy. Well, you know, holy is just perspective. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, the sacred cat would probably be more fitting because, you know, even evil can have sacred objects. Yeah, well, that's not what they said in the movie. But speaking of that, we also have the smartest carrot we've ever met in the room, <laughs> Darren Wilson. How are you guys doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How about yourself? How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, pretty good for a Sunday morning. I am I would much rather be a holy cat than a smart carrot, so I'm good. <laughs> And with that, uh, in case you don't know, we are doing 1951, The Thing from Another World, directed by Christian Neby and Howard Hawks. Uh, debatable on who directed this film, because depending on who you ask, you get a completely different answer. Yeah, uh, I, I saw earlier Wikipedia just gave all the directing credit to Christian Neby. Yeah, so, uh, like, some people claim Hawks directed all of it. Others are like, no, Neeby corrected it. The the Basically, the rumor is is that the reason Christian Neeby was given credit was to get him in the Director's Guild, uh, and that Ooh. Howard Hawks directed most of it. But people on the set have said, oh, well, no, uh, Neeby directed it. He just asked a lot of questions for Hawk, and Hawk, you know... Uh, had a lot of input. Uh, other people said, oh, Nibi only directed like one scene, Hawk did everything. And then other people are like, well, no, Christian Nibi directed it, but oh, Howard Hawks was the boss. So Very much a uh, poltergeist thing going on like decades beforehand. Yeah, pretty much. It's, it, it's supremely questionable who directed it. Um, I like to just say they both directed it and leave it at that. Uh, you know, maybe this is one time where a producer got way involved and actually did the movie good. It's uh, a possibility. Yeah, so this is based on the short story, Who Goes There? by John W. Campbell Jr., uh, which has had other, you know, makings. It's also, you know, the source material for John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, one of my all-time favorite movies. And the one that everybody automatically assumes is the original The Thing whenever you say The Thing? Yes. Um, and Even to be when you fair, say The Thing from another world, people still think of the 82 one over this one. Yeah, that's true. And then when you say, oh, no, the remake, they're like, oh, yeah, the one from, like, the 2000s? Yeah, that's exactly the same conversation I just had with my wife when I was telling her last night that I needed to watch this for the show today. Um, she's like, oh, the Carpenter one. Yeah, that'd be great. I'm like, no, no, the original one. She's like, yeah, the Carpenter one. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> the 1959 thing from another world. And then I showed her, I, sh I showed her like some of the stuff from IMDb and the photos and things. 
And she was like, I don't know if I've ever seen this. I'm like, I'm pretty sure we watched it together like 20 years ago. <laughs> well, to be fair, that was 20 years ago. I yeah, not everybody has my memory. Yeah, not everybody has my memory. I get it. <laughs> Even though I do consider the thing from another world, um, to me, it is the greatest science fiction movie of the 1950s atomic era. Yeah, I would say this is the pinnacle of these films. It it comes to a head, and it's the most adult and grown up of all the ones that we've done so far. There's a lot of hinted uh, dialogue of very uh, non child related things in this film. Well, see, <laughs> the the dialogue in general in this movie is just absolutely fantastic. Um, it's very back to back. People are talking very quickly, uh, so much so that when I was watching my Blu-ray of the Warner Archives release, these subtitles could not keep up and even omitted words and really? full lines of, like, back dialogue. That's like a Hawks thing, though, right? Like, didn't wasn't he one of the innovators that did that sort of thing where um, the dialogue people were talking over each other and tried to make it more realistic? I, I feel like I read that somewhere. Yes, it is 100% a Howard Hawks thing. Uh, you see it nowadays in Tarantino movies, uh, but Hawks is really the, the big originator of that. He wanted uh, fast talking. He wanted quick reactions because he he said it made it feel more personal, real, and it made you feel like these people were confident in what they were saying. If you felt, If you never felt like that person was lacking or anything like that if they were always like quick-witted and quick response then you yourself would feel confident in that character it's not a bad way of looking at it because it feels very much ahead of its time when you're watching it because the dialogue is very much how we see films nowadays and that's how people do talk people talk over each other all the time and they try to shout each other down particularly in a stressful situation like these doctors and military men were in Oh, very much so. The dialogue being so quick and tight, it, it makes for a much more entertaining movie than really any movie coming out at the time. Because um, back then you had more, as we saw with like them, you have a much slower dialogue. You have long drawn out explanations with everyone just listening and no one interrupting. As we're in this movie, we'll see... When explanations are going, people are asking questions, which generally is what really would happen. Yeah, totally. I agree with that. So, with that being said, we are going to jump into uh, a quick walkthrough of this movie. Because this is one I feel like... Who hasn't seen this if they're listening to this style show? Like, this is... This and... Um, uh, the day the earth stood still are kind of like two of the best known from these types of movies. And they may be your gateway into this stuff to look at some of the other more rare things too, because they are readily available. This played on TCM like all the goddamn time when I was a kid. And that's how I saw it. And I believe this was my gateway gateway drug for this kind of film. I fully believe it. And you're right, they are widely available, these types of movies now. Uh, a lot of them are just straight up on YouTube. You can find them on Amazon Prime. It is is not hard to track down these movies nowadays, especially for free. Um, and this one does have a Blu-ray from Warner Archives. It does have a DVD release. Um, now, I will say this. Uh, the Warner Archives Blu-ray 
is very bare bones. Um, it's only special features are two trailers. That's it. Which is quite a shame <laughs> because I really want a commentary track for this movie. And I don't understand why, even if they didn't have like a good film element for the colorized version, why they didn't throw that on there as a special feature. Uh, there's a lot of people that are very hateful of the colorized versions of these kind of films, though. So this one's probably the least annoying of them and probably the coolest because they actually use that to their advantage to make the alien glow and do all these other things to make it a little more scary. But I mean, I, at this point, I prefer the black and white version. So I'm happy with the Blu-ray, even though you are absolutely right. It has a shocking lack of special features. Otherwise, the print is amazing. Yeah, the print looks really good, especially considering how back in, like, 2011, when the talk of this coming to Blu-ray uh, originally started happening, uh, it came out that they were like, we just don't have good film elements. We we are tracking them down, but we just, do, we're not very hopeful. Um, and as for the colorized version, uh, it, it really only had, as far as I saw, a release on VHS, and that was it. So, I actually watched the black and white um, original yesterday, but then this morning when I woke up, I woke up early and I was like, oh, well, you know what, I've got time. Um, I watched the colorized version of it today. And you're right, the colorized version actually looks really good. Um, there's no real instance where it kind of annoyed me. Yes, I guess you can say it takes away from the atmosphere of the black and white because with the black and white, you kind of have a colder atmosphere because of the lack of color. But it's still really cool to see, like, when they set them on fire, seeing that in color. Yeah, I could totally see that. Um, and like I said, it's not the the worst or most grievous of the colorizations because there are some colorizations that are terrible. You ever seen the Night of the Living Dead version? It's awful. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we can always talk about the worst colorized movie ever. Uh, a colorization that was done so disrespectful that uh, Japan almost destroyed Italy. And that is uh, Godzilla, the colorization <laughs> of the original, well, the Americanized version of Godzilla King of the Monsters, it, it's not even a proper colorization. They just smeared color gel on the film and called <laughs> it a fucking day. Uh, if you've never seen that, you should watch some clips of it. It's really bad. I think at this point the whole thing's on YouTube. Um, it gets taken down, but it pops up a lot. But either way, you can go look at just clips of it, and it's awful. <laughs> I've never seen the color version of this, uh, but in, in preparation this week, I did reread the uh, the novella. It's, it's about 100 and in paperback, it's something like 170 pages. So I had time to fly through that, watch the carpenter, the thing just for fun. And uh, I've got the black and white version of this. Yeah, so this movie in particular deviates a lot from the novella um john carpenter mm -hmm. is, is much 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 more closer to the novel this kind of just takes the general setup and general idea of a spacecraft landing in uh north pole slash antarctica depending um them accidentally destroying the spaceship, them pulling out a block of ice, and the alien getting out of the block of ice. But the alien 
is very, very different. Um, I'll, Darren, I'll let you explain the alien in the novel. Okay. Yeah, in, in the novel, it is a lot closer to sort of its... I, I would say close to, like, how it looks when it's trying to absorb the dogs early on in the Carpenter one. Uh, it's got three hateful eyes that they keep talking about. Which is my new uh, death metal ska band, in case y'all were wondering. Three Hateful Eyes. Three Hateful Eyes. Be on tour soon. It's very non-human looking. Like, I mean, this, uh, yeah, this this one deviates quite a lot. And, um, yeah, they just feel uh, hatred. I guess the, the... I don't want to say personification, alienification, whatever. Embodiment, the embodiment yeah. of hatred. Yeah, the the and um, it's it's tele telepathic in the uh, or more telepathic in the novel. Does it also. fuck with their heads in the novel? It gives them dreams. Okay, so that would be really crazy. I could see that, and Carpenter's very visceral version of that where it literally mimics you i could see where that you know you can show that on film a lot easier than people having these weird visions and all of that kind of stuff so i i see the changes that carpenter made to make it work i wonder if uh the 90s movie sphere took the whole psychic thing from the novella then because that's really the movie where i think of an alien who psychically communicates and messes with people and gives them dreams comes to mind maybe you know i've never actually watched sphere so i'll have to get back to you on that uh it's really good um it was it was a surprise watch i watched it when uh we were all doing the 90s podcast under the stairs series that court absolutely loved um (laughs) he said to quote court um i always thought marrying my wife was the greatest day of my life until i learned of 90s horror on the podcast under the stairs, uh, direct that does quote. Sound like me, verbatim. Uh, regardless of what people said, he was hesitant at first, but he ended up coming out on top. Uh, even though he was very, very upset with the uh, very, very awful backstabbing that happened to me with Perfect Blue, uh, <laughs> we almost rioted. I'm still crying a little bit to this day, but nonetheless, so. Uh, John Carpenter's thing is, is much, much closer, but we, we're we not talking about that today. Uh, we're not talking about the novella, but we will bring up the novella. Obviously, Darren will be popping in when he feels that there's something he wants to specifically point out uh, that maybe the novella did better or different or maybe just to question us on why they might have changed it for this movie. Um, so with that being said, we're going to get into our our introduction of this movie with the opening title scene being absolutely amazing and uh, doing something that was also rare for the day of movies back then. Uh, It did a title scene before it did any credits. So Didn't, didn't Carpenter mimic this? I know we're not talking about that as much, but I feel like he mimicked this exactly where they use the same trash bag burning away to get that effect with the light shining through 
Oh yeah, he he did, and it, it looks awesome there, and it looks awesome back here. Actually, one of my favorite things about the colorized version of this is this opening is actually the color is red, and it Ooh. looks phenomenal. There, there, the the opening in color is is actually very fucking cool looking. It it's still very it has that dark mysterious look, but instead of being cold. It feels not warm, but eerie. Like, it, it, it's very, it almost feels very UFO-ish, very alien-like. Like you were seeing lights in the sky. And it's very, very great. And it's the, and it is, of course, the title of the thing from another world. Uh, coming, light coming through to create the words, like it's eating away the darkness. It is phenomenal and uh goes down whether it's this one or john carpenter's thing as one of the greatest title sequences ever i I don't think anyone would disagree with that right no it definitely especially for the 50s the the time frame that this came in when that comes melting away it really gives you this sense of dread like something's not right here and then when it says the thing like that, you see it melting in place. And then the words from another world pop up at the bottom for this title sequence. It still sends chills to my spine to this day. Yeah, Darren, how do you feel about that uh, beautiful, beautiful opening? Yeah, I am a fan. Uh, I'm, I'm not a general fan. It, it, I guess I'll say it like this. It is the first thing I think of. Well, one of the first things when I think of opening sequences of a movie a lot of them are generally forgettable, and you just want the movie to get started. Yeah, no, I completely agree. If you asked me to point out another opening title sequence from this era, I probably couldn't tell you that. And even in modern age, it's hard to fully go, oh, yeah, this title sequence is amazing. Like, the two that pop up, of course, is John Carpenter's The Thing and uh, Seven. Which yeah. seven is more of a full sequence as to where this is just a more quick title reveal. City Slickers, I feel like City Slickers put some effort in to do a animated thing, or maybe <laughs> that's Weekend at Bernie's. Like, I, I can't remember. Uh, I also really like um, uh, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein. I like the cool uh, art animation for that. Their monster mashups have stuff like that in it. A lot, the Abbott and Costello. My wife and I watched The Invisible Man as part of my 31 Days of Halloween, and that had a really cool little opening and animation to it, too. Oh, you didn't watch only 90s horror with your newfound love? Uh, <laughs> nope. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I just watched uh, 8mm every single day for October. So, <laughs> that. That was, was for different reasons than Halloween. For masturbation. Um. So. In Anchorage, journalist Ned Scott, looking for a story, visit the Air Force Officers Club where he meets Captain Pat Hendry, uh, his co-pilot, Lieutenant Eddie Dykes, um, and flight navigator Ken Mack McPherson. So the these four kind of are... Uh, the three are an introduction to the military side of this. We have the one in the middle of the newspaper reporter guy, uh, and they will, of course, meet the scientist side later on, but this is a good introduction to them. We see them playing cards and having 
quick little uh, shots at each other as they make fun of their captain for maybe uh, being a little too much into this girl that's up in the North Pole. Which is an ongoing joke throughout the whole movie that I absolutely love. This was the conversation that I was talking about where they were more or less just constantly talking about things that really didn't quite fit with uh, the time frame for how people were talking. This was very much adult conversations, particularly when she was getting after teasing him about the tryst that they had. And basically we're describing a one night stand that went awry because he passed out on her. Is that what everybody else got? Cause he was like an octopus with all hands and shit. Yeah. yeah Cause I they kind of also too, right? Yeah. yeah. Blackout drunk basically is what, cause he didn't remember most of it and she just kept torturing him and it was hilarious. Yeah. Talking about that one night in San Francisco. Um, so general Fogarty order, uh, calls Hendry, uh, to say, Hey, there's something at the polar Expedition 6 going on at North Pole, and um, the lead scientist, a Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Arthur Carrington, has radioed in to say an unusual aircraft has crashed nearby, and he wants them all to go down there and check, and or go up there, and see what's going on, so they grab some sled dogs, and they head uh, up there in a Douglas C-47. Which, yeah. I don't know, you should know the airplane. Why don't you know the airplane? What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that part is different from the, the book and the Carpenter movie, but they don't start, those don't start the same way either. In the book, they noticed that their instruments were reading weird, because uh, since where they were, the compasses were all fucked up. And then all of a sudden they're uh, just picked up like an anomaly. And the in the book, they've already gone there and they're just sort of explaining to everybody that didn't go with them what happened. So they went and they found the spaceship had been there for 20 million years, according to the ice that it was in. Um. And let's see. So they just got there in the movie. So I don't want to go too much further, but fair. Yeah. Um, upon arrival, Scott and the airman, uh, you know, they separate for a small section as our captain has talked to, uh, his lovely interest. Uh, but we do meet people like Miss Chapman, who is, I, I'm, I'm guessing she's the doctor, uh, medical nurse, something like that. Uh, we have Lee, who's one of the cooks, and uh, we also meet another guy, you know, who handles the dogs. Um, so we get this great scene of the captain talking with our uh, female interest, uh, Nikki Nicholson. So this is where we have that great conversation that Court was talking about, uh, where we get more of a introduction to their little uh playful banter and the romance angle for this movie yeah this stuff was great but at the same time kind of made the captain seem like a real creep because howard hawks was apparently a notorious uh womanizer and the dialogue really feels like something that he may have had conversation wise with a with another woman at some point because of his you know drinking and womanizing 
So <laughs> I just, I don't know. Like there's parts of it that feel great because like they're having a good time and everything's all good. But the part where she talks about where he was like an octopus, where he was all hands when he got super drunk, that was like, Ooh, yeah, that didn't age well. Hawk's kind of like, this is how I wish women would respond. <laughs> basically, basically how I looked at it, like where she's like, hey, he almost sexually assaulted me. Oh, how charming. No, I, he likes me. It's not really sexual assault in the 1950s. It's playful uh, uh, teasing as long as you're a white man. Yeah, well, it's still sexual assault. It just got categorized differently to this way society looked at it. Well, you know, I think you're uh, you're trying to rewrite history here. I think uh, you're trying to put your newfound eyes on what is obviously innocent, playful octopusing. <laughs> Six of one, half dozen of the other. I'm just going to stand by what I'm standing by here, Jerry. I agree with you. Um... So we meet some of the other scientists uh, with names like Voorhees, Stern, Redding, Stone, Lawrence, Wilson, Ambrose, Arbach? I don't know how to say your name. Olsen, uh, Dr. Chapman, and Carrington. Uh, oh, apparently, oh, Chapman and Mrs. Chapman. Oh, okay. That's his wife. Maybe she's still a nurse. I think, I feel like she's still a nurse. Um, so... We now get to learn about the science of what is going on. And basically, they explain that something that is like, what is it, like 20,000 tons of steel? Yeah, something like that. But it was like some type of metal, but they didn't know what type of metal it was. But it was the equivalent of like 20,000 tons of steel or something like that. The radiation signature where it was a type of metal. Yeah, hit in a 50-mile radius, and uh, they were able to prove that it wasn't a meteorite because of the way it behaved. So there's something out there, some kind of ship. And uh, they're all going to go check that out, which I'm all for. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it's that's what they're there for. It's scientific, so go do it. Yeah, so they go to the crash site and find a large object buried beneath the ice. Uh, they can see the tail sticking out. They all spread out to determine the shape and they realize they have a flying saucer. And Scott, the news guy is one of my favorite character in this movie. Cause he, he's so funny. He's sometimes kind of a dick, but everyone seems to know he's, <laughs> he's being playful or something, even though it seems like he is kind of really mad about all this because he tries to get his story out and is shut down by the captain. Uh, captain's like, Nope, not yet. Uh, and, and this is where we get our first instance of, I don't want to say cover up, but the government and the military restricting the flow of news. Well, yeah. in this case too, he's embedded in the military to do his reporting. So he needs to be responsible and not give away things that could be classified information and one of these things being that they discovered alien life, I mean, that could cause a huge panic, so they need to know more about it before he can report. It's more or less like they're delaying it, even though he's, like, eager to scoop everybody else. But I don't know how anybody else is going to get the news out before him unless somebody overhears the chatter on the radio. That They, they didn't make that clear. Yeah, I, I feel there is a part in in there later on where there, where there's kind of a reference to the news story has already kind of got out. 
uh, and he gets a little upset about it, but you're right. They don't quite make it clear, but I think it, it doesn't really matter because they're just trying to show that the government knows best and it's going to halt the story until we know exactly what's going on. We don't want to spread well, panic by releasing information early, which is what happened with the Roswell incident where the government gave the okay to release the story and then quickly turned around, denied that okay, and started quickly doing a cover-up. Which was not long before this movie came out, right? Uh, so, well, Roswell was 1940, was it 45 or 47? I think it was 45. Um, and actually, Roswell didn't blow up like crazy initially uh it actually took like two or three years before it got reported on again and got sent to a much wider audience uh which and then in turn uh created a much much bigger uh story because you got to keep in mind in 1951 we had the most reports on ufos to that point um, we also had, uh, before then, uh, Project Sign, which got turned into Project Grudge, and Project Grudge, which got turned into Project Blue Book in 1948. Um, in fact, in this movie, they accidentally say, uh, which we'll get to that scene here in a second, but they say that, um, uh, they're talking about a report from a magazine, an Air Force magazine, that they're no longer researching, uh, UFOs. Which is incorrect because Project Blue Book went all the way till 1969. So we were still indeed uh, researching UFOs and running that report. Hmm. Could so, that have been just something that they put in the film to try and add tension that these guys were not being believed of what they were seeing or something then? Um... I don't know if it was there to add tension as much as it was to go, well, the government says we don't have them, but now we have we have actual proof. I, it was almost like, it's almost like to make you feel like these military men are not the kind that cover up things. They are more like you. They're not a secret government that's going to hide information, even though they're denying a story. They are more along the lines of real people like you. I almost feel like them saying that the government said it it doesn't exist. It's uh, missing objects. It is hysteria and people just flat out wrong. Uh, and here's the case going, well, that's certainly not true. And these uh, realistic military men are, are going to be the ones that show you that. That makes sense. So it's like these guys are like not happy about it, but they're military men. So they're going along with their orders, even though they feel like people should know what's going on. Yeah, because they even uh, poke fun at it with uh, the guy asking him to repeat which item number it was and going, oh, OK, yeah, that one. Or even later when the reporter uh, Scott says, oh, well, look at you. They'll be or actually, I think in that conversation, he says, Oh, well, they'll be glad to know you destroyed the evidence. You'll probably get a medal for that. Yeah, even though it was an accident. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Uh, they decide that they can't 
they can't break through the ice with axes and saws and all that. It'll take too long. There's a cold, there's a storm or a cold front coming or something like that, and they only have about 30 minutes. So they decide to use thermite charges to uh, melt the ice. Well, unfortunately, that goes bad, and uh, it has some kind of reaction with whatever metal the saucer is made out of, and this violent action uh, completely destroys the ship. Uh, they mentioned that the engine probably blew and, and kind of pretty much fucked the whole thing. So all the evidence is gone, but when they go to check out everything, they then find a body in the ice, and they then take axes and saws and dig that out and take it with them. Now, I don't know if I've always missed the thermite reaction line, because I always thought it was kind of dumb that this alien spaceship that can go through space, go through our atmosphere, crash land, and look like it survived in almost one piece, is destroyed by thermite charges that wouldn't blow up most ships. It, it just burns really hot and melts ice. You know, I don't, I don't know if maybe they just didn't flesh it out as much in, in the movie, but that's pretty close to what happened in the book. But in the book, the thermite blew up the engines and then it sank in the water. Mm, it didn't they really... Do... They they mm -hmm. do mention that it that the engine blew up because uh, there's a reaction and then they're like everyone get down and then they mention something about the engine and then the engine blows up. Yeah, so it, it was I guess poor placement of the explosion, but it didn't really take out the the water did more in getting the uh, the ship out of their reach than the explosion did. I think. Well, yeah. it would have been interesting if they would have had like the fuel possibly. Um be frozen in the ice you know like the fuel leaked on the way down in and filled up the water so when they were melting it maybe the fuel ignited and it acted like a wick through the ice to light up the the ship they could have explained something like that a little bit better i think yeah saying that there was a react the metal had a reaction to the thermite uh which caused the ship to blow up and then light the engine to blow it up also just never really set well with me um and it sounds time, like horseshit pseudoscience, that's why. Yeah, I paid more attention this time. Like I said, I had the subtitles on when I watched it and just paid more attention to kind of see there's something I missed. I need to take a closer look for this explanation. They did have one. It's just, like Court said, it's kind of horseshit. It, it, it could also possibly be, uh, you know, because they do have those random comments about science and the military and stuff and it could just be well it's the military of course they'll explode it that's that's what they do as is uh proven out later on when they get instructions to do the thing that they did that fucked up yeah yeah but they weren't trying to destroy evidence in this case they were trying to rescue it yeah but it's you know a hammer always sees a nail <laughs> My hammers don't. They're blind. <laughs> my hammers should have are... looked out for those nails. Yeah, my hammers are from South Korea. They're really mostly used to hit people and remove teeth. <laughs> but only in a hallway when there's like mass quantities of people that you got to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's what they're used for. 
so they get back to the camp and uh, we get this great argument of we need to start chipping through the ice so we can do an examination, but Captain Hendry's like, uh, no. He takes command over everything and he's like, we're not doing anything until we figure out what's going on. Uh, the scientists obviously want to get in there and see what's going on. Uh, Carrington leading that side of it. Uh, but another scientist, um, which I can't remember which one it was. That's probably, This movie has a lot of characters, and they're not very good at pointing out who's who. But a, another uh, scientist says, well, wait, we don't know if this thing has got some kind of space disease or how our atmosphere or our air is going to affect the body. We need to wait. Um, so Carrington finally gives in and agrees that Hendry will go and, and ask for... Uh, Fogarty, 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 is it Fogarty? Fogarty, sure, uh, about it, and here we get, what do we get after this? I don't remember, um, uh, where do, what do we have now? What is going on? Uh, well, in the movie, it starts melting, and then the creature gets out. Oh, yeah, this dumb thing, so, uh, they give one of the guys a blanket and the guy puts the heating blanket over the block of ice so we can't see the eyes and forgot that the heating blanket is on. I guess he couldn't feel the heat through the gloves or whatever. He he just did not notice it. Um, also, I don't know if it happens yet, but there is a scene in this movie that I noticed is not in the colorized version. So, you know that scene where the captain, uh, he goes to talk to the chick again and gets tied up? Yeah, they did take that one out. Um, I think the colorized version, there was a tw- an hour and 21 minute version that got released later on uh, that they trimmed some things down, like six minutes worth. And this complete scene was taken out probably because of how racy it is. I mean, the guy's tied up and drinking and they're talking about sex and how she trusts him now that, you know, she's in control and he's all tied up. Very uh, S&M stuff that, you know, goes way ahead of uh, of the time frame of what would be acceptable to talk about. Oh, very much so. No kink shame in here, though. We're all about it. Hey, Captain likes to get tied up and she likes to be in control. I'm all for it. I'll watch that 1950s sex tape. Yeah, I got no problem with it either. I'm just saying that for the time frame, this is very risque stuff. Yeah, so... With, uh, the guy is sitting in there, um, it's Barnes. Barnes is the guy that, uh, doesn't like the appearance. He puts a blanket over it, and, uh, he never hears the ice dripping, even though we do. I I am assuming he probably can't hear it over the sound of the wind coming in, but they wanted us, the audience, to hear it, so I kind of give this a pass, but he doesn't notice it. He doesn't hear the sound of the thing getting up. And not until he sees the shadow kind of loom over him. Um, Because he doesn't even seem to notice the dogs barking. But the dogs certainly notice something is wrong. Uh, He jumps up, turns around, shoots the thing a few times. And then runs out uh, of the door. Which is very important because in this movie, it's all about doors. Open doors and closed doors. That was something my wife latched onto. Um, every time one of the doors was left open for too long and someone would say, close the door, she started having fun by yelling at people to close the door when, right, <laughs> like, right as or right before 
um, someone else in the movie said it. And it makes sense because it's like subarctic temperatures out there. It's going to suck all the heat out. You don't want to have that door open any longer than you have to. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah, in this movie, it's all about opening and closing doors constantly. People are in and out of doors. And yelling um, at each other to open the door, close the door, open that window, break open that window, plug that window, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I like it when they plug it. Um, <laughs> so the thing uh, escapes and ends up getting attacked by the dogs. Uh, it's a really cool scene watching that, that fucking thing just throw these dogs around. Um, not that yeah. I like dogs being thrown around, but I didn't feel it's not one of those times where I feel... It's not done gratuitously, so it doesn't... I'm not, like, sitting there like, oh, my God, why'd they do this to the dog? It's it's very well done. It's 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 from a faraway view. It's just done very well. Well, it looks like a stuntman or someone who's used to handling dogs, playing with dogs that know how to wrestle and have been trained to do this sort of thing where they'll grab on and then get tossed. I mean, I never really felt like the dogs were being hurt because when the guy was throwing them, it's not like he was roughly handling them he was just in the makeup and then he'd toss them and then they would land in fake snow or on a what i assume was a mattress covered in fake snow it didn't really look like the dogs were being hurt it just looked like they did the sound effects to make us feel like the dogs were being hurt and it's a really well done sequence i was looking very closely because i don't like to see animals harmed for real on film it bugs me oh you're gonna love the next episode of kill the cast (laughs) <laughs> we'll be doing uh, Cannibal Holocaust very shortly on my show, and I'm not looking forward to those aspects of those films. Yep, I'm recording it Wednesday, Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> so, fun times for that. Uh, Court, you can always watch the edited version. has all the animal cru- the animal cruelty-free version. Yeah, I know. I just, I'm not, if I'm going to watch the movie, I'm going to watch the movie the way that it was made, even though it's horrific, and I don't, I can't get behind it. I just... I'm going to do it. You know, I just, I can't watch an edited version just because it will make me feel more comfortable. I agree with you. That's not the way we do things. We're professional podcasters. We, we put it all on the line. If we got to watch it, we got to watch it. Uh, regardless of how it makes us feel, uh, regardless of uh, court having to record with the Nazi sympathizer, uh, you just got to <laughs> do what you got to do. He hasn't started listening to this show yet. Show yet. Has he? I'm sure. No, no, he will not listen to anything that he's not on. And uh, great. He's very much uh, hateful of that clip to the point where I'm using that to bribe him to do more work on that show. (laughs) I just want to know. I just want to get away with making fun of him, uh, knowing he can't do anything about it because he doesn't know. He doesn't know what I say about him on here. Yeah. Well, even if I told him, he'd be like, ah, whatever. Care. Who the fuck is Jerry? Why is he talking shit? Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, an arm gets ripped off, and they they grab the arm. They go to examine the arm, and this is where we find out that uh, it is an advanced form of plant life. Uh, Carrington is convinced of its superiority to humans, and becomes intent on communicating with it. Here we get our lovely lines of it being a super carrot, learning about. Uh, these uh, vines that can communicate with each other, learning about a plant that uh, eats the flesh of living creatures. Uh, This is all very cool, very creepy stuff and uses science quite well. Um, The doctor that showed up in Mant um, explained some really cool aspects of this as well about how plants will eat 
people or, or well, could eat people if they were big enough and the various plants that uh, end up trapping mice to consume them slowly. The way that the dialogue goes back and forth and even Paul Freeze, the cartoon voice and announcer voice for like all sorts of stuff ends up doing some of these explanations as well. And they use the most eloquent speaking and powerful voices in in this scene to make it that much more effective. Yes, and I love Scott the Reporter uh, interrupting and asking questions and, and, like, his responding to it as to where the military people are very much listening intent uh, and even walk away at some point to kind of go, okay, with this new information, what can we do? Um, I just love this scene all the way around the way the military people act, the way the newspaper person reacts, and the way the scientists are reacting it is very, very interesting and starts setting apart the two teams with a news uh, reporter right in the middle. Uh, because at the end of the day, this movie comes down to the scientists versus the military. Because at this point, a lot of people, especially in America, were a little hesitant of scientists because they felt like scientists have gone a little too far with creating uh, a devastating atomic bomb and a hydrogen bomb and maybe playing around with things they shouldn't be playing around, which is always kind of funny because in the same light they're doing that, the American people are trusting the government more than ever, especially the military. Uh, You know, they saved us from World War II, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But it was the military who had the scientists create the bomb. The scientists weren't going to just create the bomb out of nowhere. It was for the military. Yet the American people were kind of anti-scientist because scientists didn't care about life as to where the military was all about protecting life. Yeah, it's weird how perspectives have kind of changed a little bit now on some of this stuff and how some other perspectives have not at all. It's like this was set up in this time frame in the 50s post-World War II and it just never really, like, people never really got over it, it feels like. I agree. Uh, now, Darren, you're what I would call our show's political expert uh, <laughs> from the uh, 1950s era. What is your take on this military versus scientists and the American public? Yeah, well, I think, uh, it, well, America's been at war pretty much since it was America, and post-World War II is probably the most positively the military's ever been looked at by all of society. You know, there was a big fandom for the military in the Bush war years and stuff, but that was more – not that people disliked the military, but there was definitely, you know – Well, that was because pro- we suffered a terrorist attack on our soil, so it yeah. made people way more patriotic. So, you know, I mean, a lot of veterans, well, a lot of veterans still are treated like garbage. But, you know, there was a lot of mistreatment of veterans after Vietnam and nobody really talks about the Korean War that much. Uh, World War Two was everybody pitch in. We're fighting the Nazis and we've been attacked by Japan. That's the which... biggest change from then to 2017 to 2019, isn't it? What, mm-hmm. Japan attacking yeah. us? No, no. Uh, everybody, pitching in, everybody pitching in to fight the Nazis. There's a big change now. For real. <laughs> I was about to say, I wouldn't consider Japan attacking us just because they keep making weird anime. I don't think that's fair. 
I don't think they're trying to degrade our society with Boku no Pico or something like that. Um, though it could be possible. I have been reading a lot of fucked up manga the, uh, this past week. And uh, just real fucked up stuff. It's uh, It's been a journey. Uh, <laughs> so you think they're coming after our society through manga and uh, hentai and all that other stuff? Uh, you know, maybe. So, okay. Uh, I was reading this manga called Fracture. And it's, it's about this uh, serial killer uh, called, like, the Slice Devil or something like that. He, bas- he cuts girls in half. Um, well... Uh, when he's at like five victims, he's talking with some of his coworkers, and they're all trying to figure out, oh, who's the slice devil, blah, blah, blah. Well, three more bodies appear. Um, and it turns out that, uh, you know, they're all cut in half too. So everyone thinks it's a slice killer, but it's actually not. It's some copycat. And, um, and the copycat turns out to be this manga artist who we keep cutting to. Uh, bouncing between the real slice killer and this manga artist, and this manga artist is having a conversation with this uh, woman who's there to talk about uh, them doing a manga on the slice killer and how he actually wants to move into uh, more doing mysteries because he's tired of doing uh, Euro gore because uh, he mostly just does fucking gore manga. Uh, and then it's revealed that he is the copycat killer and the three uh victims who turns out they all look alike i i want to say they were trying to say triplets but the, some of the naming was kind of weird uh but he has actually been talking to himself and interview in and the woman is just the top half of the body uh sitting in in a chair or propped up in a chair but that's fucking weird <laughs> oh it gets weirder baby so then uh, it turns out that the real slice killer, he's trying to find who it is and he thinks he, he's getting closer. Um, well, it turns out, so he is told to kill these people because, uh, the voice of his dead brother who killed himself by laying on a train track because a girl, uh, you know, denied him. Uh, that's why he's been going out and killing people because his brother died because the girl denied him. Well, it turns out that him and two other people are actually both sides of the torso. His upper side is him, but his lower half, those aren't legs. That's his fucking brother. They are connected like torso to torso. So no legs, no below the waist. His brother's arms are his feet. And his head is down there. It's not like deformed or anything. It's like just a regular thing. And there's two other people that are like this. And uh, they've been cutting people in half because they want to make other people like them, which will create a new race of people that will be able to take over the world. And they end up tracking down the manga artist as the manga artist is burying a body and reveal all this. Okay, that gets really weird. They could be gatekeepers in the labyrinth. One of them always tells the truth, and the other one always lies. Yep, so it was really weird, and then I read this, I was reading this other manga that's not complete, uh, it's a much longer one, that other one was just like a short story, uh, but it's called Dead Tube, and it's basically some company creates 
a website called DeadTube where you can upload footage and the person with the most view gets a shit ton of money, but the person with the least amount of views gets a punishment. And the punishment is you are convicted of every crime that was committed and uploaded to DeadTube for that event, uh, for that challenge. Uh, And you also accrue any uh, money that is owed for, say, someone buys a bunch of guns or fireworks or causes property damage. Uh, you have to incur that penalty. So if someone like kills someone or rapes someone or something like that, that's on you for not getting enough views. Um, and, and then there, there's these characters that are all involved in shit. Uh, and that one's real, real fucked up. Uh, rape, torture, uh, murder, uh, abuse. It's, it's insanely graphic. Um, so yeah, uh, because of that, <laughs> and Japan... this has been your mini episode of Jerry explains manga to Cord and Darren. Uh, because I need them to know that Japan is trying to undermine our society uh, with manga and anime, and uh, that's why it was okay to drop the bomb on them in World War II. I'm <laughs> um, not gonna argue now because I'm a little bit scared of what's going on in Japan. Yeah, real fucked up. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, so this movie is about, uh, the regular people not trusting scientists and and trusting the military, and here we start really pushing that, because we start getting our biggest difference between the scientists and the military, where the military is like, yo, we've got to protect ourselves, and we've got to, we, you know, we might have to destroy this thing. And the scientists are like, we absolutely cannot destroy this. Um, so as they go looking for the alien, uh, they enter a green room. And they find nothing, so the military people leave. But the scientists stay behind because Keratin noticed that there was mold that has wilted. And they explained that it wilted because the door was from the outside was open. And it only takes about 15 seconds of cold air to wilt it. So they also take another look at the lock and realize the lock was not only like bent open, but it was bent back to hide that it was open. Uh, and the key has now been taken. They also find a little bit of uh, what would be alien blood, but here we call it uh, plant sap on a container and when they open it up they find a dog in there who has been completely drained of blood and they realize that uh the plant is feeding on uh the blood some gruesome shit right there it's a vampire carrot uh yes it is a vampire carrot uh it is uh can only be destroyed by a vampire bunny Benicula to the rescue exactly um, so the scientists post Don't a forget secret... a were-rabbit. We could have a were-rabbit go after it. Uh, Ooh. I will be able to defeat both of them because I have nunchucks that are made from the rabbits from Monty Python of the Holy Grail. <laughs> I warned you. I am undefeatable. Uh, so yeah, the scientists post their own watch there, uh, hoping that they will encounter the air, the alien before the airman will find it. So the next morning, we have the airmen continue their search. Uh, and Tex informs them as they come in that Fogarty is aware of the discovery and demands further information. Uh, 
but they can't get it all because of the fierce storm. Uh, one of the scientists, Stern, appears badly injured and tells the group that the fuck me, the creature. See, Japan. I've been pronouncing all these Japanese names. Now I can't talk. My brain's going dead. Japan's society is trying to destroy us. Um, so uh, Stern informs them that Arabak and Olsen have been killed. The airmen go to investigate and the alien attacks as they open the door. They manage to barricade it inside the greenhouse by uh, barricading the door that leads outside with barrels and wood and uh, locking the front one so it can't get in there either. Um, that jump scare whenever they open the door and the alien comes swiping out, that still worked on my wife. That made her pop with a scream hardcore <laughs> when that happened. It was awesome. Oh, nice. nice. And this is actually the first time we get a truly good look at the alien. Yeah, that shot when it takes the swing out and then you see that that arm that was supposedly bitten off by the dog is back. That is real horror right there. Oh, yes. Um, so, Hedry, uh, Hendry, uh confronts Keratin and orders him that he is going to remain in his lab in his quarters and the mess hall because of him not sharing the information and uh, causing the death of two people. Um... Keratin, though, is obsessed with the alien, and he shows Nicholson and the other scientists his experiment, using seeds taken from the severed arm. He's been growing small alien plants by feeding them from their blood plasma supply. Um, and here we kind of get in one of these breakdown of the scientists where Keratin is looking kind of crazy, but another scientist is like, yo, this might be going too far. You know, think of what a thousand of these things could do. Um... Hendry ends up finding the missing plasma because when it was needed to treat Stern, they were found that Stern was being done with lie transfusion. So uh, Hendry ends up going and talking to uh, his lady love, uh, Nikki, who ends up uh, giving up the notes and pretty much telling on Keratin. She said, fuck, fuck that. She's going with a dreamboat instead of uh, her boss. Didn't she actually say, too, like, he should, quote-unquote, sock her in the jaw so that she's covered and can pretend like uh, he knocked her out and just took the stuff? I think she yeah, jokes she, about that. She actually does uh, make a joke about, uh, you know, you're going to have to hit me and take it by force. Uh, but she just gives it to him, so it's said very playfully. But I think that's done... Because it's, once again, them trying to make the military not look like bad people. He doesn't have to take it by force because he's, he's a good person. He's charismatic, and she knows that. And so she openly gives it to him because she believes that he's going to do the best thing over the scientists, which are more risky and care less about human life uh, in the pursuit of knowledge. They were so busy wondering whether they can do it, they never questioned that they should. <laughs> That should be used in a movie. Man, that is smart. You should write movies, Court. <laughs> Thank and you. Th this was the year that um, the Rosenbergs were arrested. And uh, so that's another thing of high distrust of scientists. Very much so. Um, so with that, he goes and confronts Carrington and uh, they get another transmission of orders to keep the creature alive, but escape from the greenhouse. And uh, 
we get this great scene of them all talking in the uh, quarters that the I call it the military quarters because it seems to be where all the military people are staying, where they come up with a plan to douse it in kerosene and light it on fire and give us one of the greatest scenes in movie history. No argument the, here. This stuff was intense still to this day watching it. It terrifies me. Like all the guy walking around in the suit on fire and all the people that don't have any protective clothing on going up against them and getting hit. Somebody had to get burned on this, this set this day. Somebody. Yeah, but you know what? I could not find any uh, evidence out there of someone getting actual hurt. Uh, there was something. Uh, veteran stuntman John Steele replaced James Arness in the fire scene. Steele wore an asbestos suit with a special fiberglass helmet with an oxygen supply underneath. He used a 100% oxygen, oxygen supply, which was highly combustible. It was pure luck he didn't burn his lungs while breathing in the mixture. Yeah. just It I, went somebody, off without the, the, a hitch. Yeah, the movie gods were smiling on them this day. That's I don't know how else to explain it. If only they trusted scientists a little bit more. <laughs> uh, yeah, but this scene is great. The, the monster crashes in. They throw kerosene on it. They light it on fire. Um... The only scene that kind of bugs me is uh where the uh our our woman love um Nikki is in the corner holding just a, a mattress. Uh there's a point where they throw fire towards the alien when he's there, and it clearly erupts fire everywhere in that corner. Like she should have been like burnt up if her character was really there yeah but they hit her behind a mattress because that actress was probably the only one smart enough to say fuck you i'm not doing this yeah but i do love that mattress scene when the alien sweeps through the, at the mattress uh on fire and rips through the mattress and the mattress actually starts catching fire yeah that was intense that is one of my favorite scenes in this movie and this scene also actually looks really awesome in color, especially that scene with the monster swiping at the mattress. That fire is just awesome and vibrant and looks fantastic. Yeah, I could totally see that. I'm going to have to check out the color version. Yeah, if you can find it, it's it's very, very good to watch. Um, I know there are some clips of it on YouTube. I think the colorized version might be on YouTube. Um, I did not watch it by legal means, so, you know, I don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah, but well, I don't care. Something... It doesn't exist out there for you to get it in legal means, so sometimes you have to resort to piracy to get to see the things you need to see. Yeah. Well, I mean, technically, I didn't pirate it. I watched it on someone else's Plex server, so, you know, I didn't do the bad thing. <laughs> well, you streamed it, but there's still sort of a gray area there. That's why all that IPTV stuff can still exist. You know, gray, this movie's black and white. I watched a colorized version of it. Seems to me that I'm clear. <laughs> Not sure that logic tracks, but I'm too tired to argue. Uh, you know, here's the thing about tracking. You can adjust it on a VCR. <laughs> so... 
<laughs> legality is all about perspective court and what's right and wrong changes daily. Yeah. <laughs> we used to not trust a scientist and th- think they were liars and trusting the military. Now we trust scientists and don't trust the military unless you're the government. Then you don't trust your government or the scientists. You don't trust anyone because, I don't know, you're fucking dumb. <laughs> Stockpile guns against the people that are going to uh, take my guns, even though I'm the most patriotic person here. Wow, that was a little mini rant. Hell yeah, I just bring it out in people, even without saying things. I know, he's psychically telling me like the alien did in the book. Um, which, speaking of which, did y'all know there is a uh, longer version of that novel that was found uh, over the past two years and supposed to be coming out, I think, in 2020? I was not aware of that, no. Nice. Okay, so look into this. There is a longer version of it that is more uh, darker horror uh and they found it um over the past two years and it is supposed to get a full uh release and it's like a full novel it's like twice the length that's crazy cool yeah so it was just uh it was made shorter to be released uh its first release was in a magazine that he happens to be the editor of which is why in the magazine it was released under a pseudonym it was not his real name so, very interesting. You got to look into that. Um, so, they set it on fire and it bust out the window and run away. I love things burning in the snow. Um, after they regroup, they realize that the building's temperature is rapidly falling. Uh, the furnaces have stopped working as they have been sabotaged by the alien. So, here they start coming up with a, another plan. Uh... They're going, they, instead of setting it on fire again, they are actually going to set up an electrical fly trap. Um, as they staff most of the scientists in the generator room, um, the, uh, they start building and setting up this electrical fly trap and wait for the alien to show up. Um, the alien does show up and a really cool small thing in this scene with the alien coming here is, well, two things. First of all, Dr. Carrington um, ends up turning off the generator and he has a gun and the scientists end up turning on him and stopping him. But Carrington ends up running out there to try to communicate with the alien only to have the alien bitch slap him uh, onto the floor. I also, I also love whenever the alien strikes somebody, he sends them sailing a good bit, and that kind of demonstrates just how strong this particular being is. And that particular bitch slap of that doctor trying to communicate with him was quite violent. Like he really just kind of throws him to the floor, and the guy goes sliding a little bit. Oh yeah, you ever been hit with a Brussels sprout stalk? It hurts, man. Those things will send you uh, across the room. Um, what happens in my bedroom at night stays in my bedroom at night, Jerry. Ooh, that's dangerous, man. Don't be hitting people with a Brussels sprout stalk. You need to switch to something easier like corn. <laughs> you know, well, for in, those moments in, where you're feeling like a freak on a leash, Court. It's in ready supply here uh, <laughs> in uh, Nebraska, that type of stuff. So That's really weird. I didn't think anyone actually lived in Nebraska. <laughs> Mostly it's just to the, you know, city areas that people live. 
Hmm. That's weird. I understand why y'all play with corn so much. Um, <laughs> got to do what you got to do for fun, man. So uh, another really small thing I like about the scene is the alien ends up kind of walking off the uh, wooden planks. And the guy's like, yo, we have to get them back on the wooden planks. So the other guy thinks fast and throws um, like a pickaxe at the ground and makes the alien hop back up. That is a scene that doesn't have to be there. But it being included just works so well. Yeah, I was going to bring it up if if nobody else had. Because that, that stood out to me, too. So yeah, it has to be on the walkway. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is it is really nice. Uh, so the alien ends up walking in, and they turn on the electrocution process, and three bolts of electricity burn him down to ashes. Which is great. Um, <laughs> and Scott passes out, which is also great. It... it Really warms my heart. Uh, when the weather clears, Scotty is finally able to transmit the story of a lifetime. Uh, but before that, we also get this great little scene of the other military guys and uh, our lovely, lovely uh, love interest, uh, Nikki Nicholson, making fun of their captain and saying that he needs to uh, settle down. And, and she's asking, how much money does he make? Can he support two people? And it's just a really fun scene. The the banter between the military guys, the captain and her, throughout this whole movie is just a lot of fun. Yes, there are some uh, very uh, rapey, Sean Connery-like James Bond moments, but it's still really fun and playful. And it's something lighthearted. It's a long-running joke in the movie that I really enjoy every time they do it. Yeah, Especially this... since a lot of times it's turned on the captain. Well, it's kind of funny that they go back and they are giving the captain just straight-up shit, like, while they're doing this. So it's basically, like, a really nice moment of comic relief that you really need. And while it may be a little uncomfortable, some of the things that they're talking about, it's still gets to the point of what you want to see with this kind of thing anyway. And, you know, them just kind of teasing the captain and I can kind of forgive some of the talk, even though it makes me a little uncomfortable because it fits with this time frame. And it's more or less them saying like, you're a womanizing boozing piece of shit. Maybe it's time that you settle down with a woman who actually will, you know, be with someone like you that has the reputation that you have. And, this is your last shot, Captain. And everybody's just basically teasing him to that effect. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and we end this movie with Ned Scotty Scott giving one of the greatest ending monologues in a movie ever. Um, I absolutely adore this. Um, it's great. Basically, it goes like this. All right, fellas, here's your story. North Pole, November 3rd, Ned Scott reporting. One of the world's greatest battles was fought and won today by the human race. Here at the top of the world, a handful of American soldiers and civilians met the first invasion from another planet. A man by the name Noah once saved our world with an arc of wood. Here at the North Pole, a few men performed a similar service with an arc of electricity. The flying saucer which landed here in his pilot have been destroyed, but not without casualties among our own meager forces. I would like to bring to the microphone some of the men responsible for our success. 
But as senior Air Force officer Captain Hendry is attending to demands over and above the call of duty, and Dr. Carrington, the leader of the scientific expedition, is recovering from wounds received in the battle. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody whenever they, wherever they are. Watch the skies. Everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. Damn, that's good. Yeah, and I feel like that is the impetus to get this show going because that's that speech alone launched like tons of ideas about alien invasions. You know, really encapsulates what's what's best about this era of sci-fi. Even though this is coming towards the end of it, this is the epitome of all of it, man. It's perfect. Uh, it is, and it's and it's also very different how we think of aliens. Because here's the thing. In the real world at this time, the government was not admitting to any kind of aliens. All of it was hoaxes or uh, misseen things or mass hysteria, stuff like that. The government would not be allowing any news reporter to be telling people what was going on regardless of the government saving it. If they had the ability to you know, kill that story, they would have. But here in this movie, not only does the military save us, quote-unquote, and they are the more calm, logical, and empathetic people for this entire movie, but they constantly try to, okay, if I can get the story out, I will let you get the story out. And at the end, he, Captain, ends up saying, you know what, go ahead and tell the story. I have, he hasn't gotten permission to release the story yet, but he lets him release it anyway. Um... And it's very different because a lot of times in these movies, you don't have that. You don't have the government, the military being the the big people. In fact, if you go across the sea to uh, Japan where they're trying to destroy us slowly, in a lot of Godzilla movies, you have uh, the scientists being the ones that save the day and the military who can't seem to do it. And that's only three years later where we see this in uh, the original Gojira. So it's very, very different. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons that this movie stands the test of time. Because when it came out, it got okay reception, even though it did for a sci-fi movie, it made the most money of 1951 for a science fiction movie. Um, And it did beat out the day the earth stood still, which came out that year also. Um, But it wasn't considered amazing. In fact, it got a lot of kind of negative reviews. Uh, but through the test of time, it has come out as one of the greatest science fiction films of all time and is even uh, was selected, you know, by the National Congress or whatever to be put in our library of films as a movie of importance. Oh, nice. The Library of Congress? Uh, yeah, that li- I don't believe in libraries, but uh, yeah, that thing. <laughs> I just think... Don't put things in libraries because they can be set on fire. You know, you're going to have a library of Alexandria. See? Japan. Can't talk. Uh, Alexandria uh, happen. And you're going to lose everything. That's why you've got to make it all digital and eventually get your conscience onto the internet and leave your body. They're working on it. They've been... uh... 
digitizing a lot of their collections for backups forever. Every once in a while, you'll get a, a release of a bunch of digitized uh, paintings and stuff. More often than the... Because they can do that a lot easier than releasing movies, of course, because of all the different copyright laws. But Very true. All right, so we are at the end of this movie, and now it's time to... to throw it over and see how everyone feels about it. So, uh, Darren, I think I'm going to let you lead us off. How did you feel about this movie? What's your history with this movie and all that jazz? What do you want to say to the people about this movie? Yeah, I would say possibly like a lot of people, I have seen this movie, but it's been a long time since I had seen it. You know, my go-to is the Carpenter one. And... I liked it back when I saw it, but I liked it a lot more this time around. I'm not exactly sure what it was that made me like it more, but hell of a good time. It's not long. I mean, how long did you say it is? It's like an or hour did... and a half. Yeah, it's it's like an hour and a half. Really cool alien scenes. I, I like I like the conversation. It's interesting that they added women in this because there aren't in the the book or the Carpenter movie. Um, The ending was interesting. It also is a lot different than the the source material. But if you haven't read it, I don't want to tell you the ending. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think this is a hell of a good time. Good music. You know, it's not you know, a soundtrack you're going to sit there and listen to or whatever. But like the movies of the fifties that had the, I'm rambling. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Court, what about you? I feel pretty much the same as what Darren was describing, but I'd like to augment what he said. I think that when you watch this film with a more critical eye, instead of watching it just for entertainment value, you start to see a lot more things layered into the film that you may or may not be paying attention to when you're just watching it to see, you know, soldiers versus an alien with the somewhat help and hindrance of various scientists. Um, When I watched it this time around, I was more struck with recognizing people that were showing up in Joe Dante films in the eighties. For instance, the captain was the gas station attendant that gets sold the smokeless ashtray um by <laughs> by uh, Peltzer, <laughs> Peltzer on the way back in Gremlins yeah he's that's him and he's been in a bunch of other Joe Dante films with little cameos or little minor roles you know the doctor that we were talking about that has the big fur coat that always talks as though everything needs to be enunciated perfectly at all times um that particular actor was the doctor who also showed up in Mant in Matinee which keeps coming up on this show because of We will both. do Matinee <laughs> at some point even though it's outside of our era it it it's is very about, much our, about era. our era yeah it's very much about our era so it fits um you know so like I, I noticed those actors and I was pointing that stuff out with my wife and and like watching it with the critical eye actually enhances my enjoyment of the film like really trying to analyze scenes and find something to talk about made it really hard for me to find things to not talk about in this film and watching it this time I really enjoyed that that enhancement of the film I can always go back and watch it just to enjoy it and have a good time but um 
there was just something special about watching it for the purpose of specifically trying to find things to talk about that made it that much more rich because there's so much more detail just beneath the surface of this little tale. And that's something that Howard Hawks did above a lot of other filmmakers in his time frame is he made this whole world feel real in, in what he does. And I really, really enjoy that aspect of it this time around. And it, like I said, it's been 20 years since I watched this film. Wow. Um, well, I, asked for, I actually had watched it earlier, uh, this year, I think over the summer. Um, actually I've watched it twice this year because I watched the Blu-ray earlier this year, but also one day while I was working in my office, I, uh, pulled out my laser disc and I put my laser disc on and, uh, I watched it on the laser disc. And now I'm kind of curious if there was any scenes in the laser disc that are not here because there are some scenes uh, that reportedly were filmed that um, I've never seen. I've never I've never seen them anywhere, but uh, they're they're out there somewhere. Uh, for instance, uh, there is a version that has Doctor Carrington walking through his nursery of the like baby plants, um, and like those baby plants are like uh, twelve inches tall at this point. Um, of course, we talked about there are some versions that cut the uh, tying up scene. Um, there was, and there's a few versions where they also kind of cut that stuff out. Uh, but, um, the one scene I'm really interested in, um, is supposedly was going to be on the laser disc, but didn't actually show up there. Um, and it was a scene of the slaughtered scientist hanging upside down, being bled to feed the seedlings. They talk apparently, about that, but they don't actually show it. Apparently it was filmed and it was cut to, it was too gory. Um, and, and if only those elements survived that we could have all these different versions on like this ultimate Blu-ray, even if they look like shit, just put that stuff in and show us where it should have gone with like another disc or something. Yeah, like they did with My Bloody Valentine original. Like, yeah. just fucking or, do it. Because, or any of the films the that thing. have footage that's fucked up like that, right? Yeah, I've never seen this scene anywhere. So there's a chance that because this was made in the 1950s, early 1950s, 1951, so it was probably filmed in 1950, uh, this scene is probably completely lost to time. As I've never seen it on a VHS release, I've never seen it on a DVD release, I've never seen it on a Laserdisc release. Um, and I'm actually going to try to do some research and see if I can find this scene anywhere. But it, I've, I've never seen it show up in any of my searches. Anywhere. Uh, because the two biggest scenes that were cut were that one and then the tied up kissing scene. Well, at least we got the tied up kissing scene back. I'd rather have the gory people being hung up like the fucking predator uh, <laughs> being bled out to feed plants. Well, we can see what each of our kinks are. Uh, you know what? Uh, no kink shaming here, boys. I'm not it shaming. I'm just, rope. I'm just saying there's a lot of rope and one of us is into death a little bit more than the other. I'm sure that's just uh, the warping from my mind reading Japanese manga as they're trying to destroy our society. Oh, I'd agree. The Japanese are definitely trying to fuck up your brain, Jerry. Yeah, they know what they're doing. I see them. I see them all out there. 
just put, I'm gonna put in a bunch of beeps so it makes me sound like I'm saying like some really fucked up like <laughs> racist shit towards Japanese people. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. I love the Japanese. They gave me Godzilla. And that's yeah. really what what matters in the end. I'll forgive uh, everything else, including the hentai, just because of Godzilla. Godzilla yeah, is much. the gift that keeps on giving. Um, but yeah, I so I've watched this movie now four times this year. Um, and I absolutely love this movie. Um, much like the John Carpenter film, I cannot find much wrong with this film. I really don't have any complaints about this film. It has great pacing. It has great dialogue. It has great characters. Um, they, even though there were a lot of complaints from the director about not really caring for how the alien looked, which means they, they ended up not doing a lot of close-up shots because they, they it didn't look good on the test film. Um, the monster still looks pretty decent to me for what it is. Yeah, it's nothing crazy or anything, but... I mean, it looks better than a crab monster. Well, yeah, there's they had much more budget than what Corman ever used for that kind of stuff. But I I don't know. Sometimes a director needs to not worry about what it is that they wanted and concern themselves with how to make what what look they got work. Um, we've seen that before in a lot of other science like fiction films that we've already done where maybe the creatures don't look as great as what they possibly could, but they found a way to film them to make them scary. And they didn't do a lot of shots that were straight on, but I think that also benefits because when you do see it, it's very otherworldly, but at the same time, not seeing it and just knowing that it's around and it's lurking adds to the tension and really scares the shit out of you. Behind Absolutely. any of the closed doors. Yeah. Door opens, door closes. Doesn't matter. He could be there. You don't know. Uh, but yeah, this, this movie is absolutely beautiful. It is one of the greatest movies of the 1950s. Um, and I would actually almost go as far to say is because I don't have a flaw with this movie, I would almost say this is, you know, a perfect 10 out of 10 movie. Um, it, it just does. It, now that's only considering in its own genre. Um, Obviously, there are other movies that are more artistic, but, like, if you're going to watch a black-and-white science fiction movie, you really cannot go wrong with The Thing from Another World. Uh, this, I absolutely this is, love it. This is totally the pinnacle of this era. Uh, we've, we've said it a couple of times, and I know that I've, I've been bound, pounding that, that drum quite a bit, but this is definitely the finest sci-fi film of its, of its age. Like, it totally is. Yeah, I think most people would argue that it would probably be between this and maybe the day the Earth stood still. And me personally, I just think this movie has better dialogue, has better pacing, and is just more entertaining. While, yes, you could argue that the day the Earth stood still has a more, puts the message in front. Um, as where this movie doesn't really have like a, a message as much as... It has a message, but you don't really care. It's more about where... the it's more about the action, and you really have to look to see the message portion of it really to be there. Whereas uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still really wears it on its sleeve and is uh, driving it home with with the message. Day of the Earth Stood Still is more of a Neil Blomenkamp type of uh, ham fisted way of delivering its message, and this is more subtle <laughs> and just kind of lets you figure it out on your own what it's trying to tell you. Exactly. 
So, uh, yeah, if you've never seen this movie, you have to go see this movie. Uh, it is absolutely fantastic. Um, oh, and that guy on YouTube will be happy. Uh, so, uh, I think it was on... We had a comment on YouTube for our podcast. Uh, it might have been on them, where he was like, this episode's longer than the actual movie. <laughs> I don't know why you need to tell me that I edited the podcast, I know. Um <laughs> but he'll be happy because this one also is going to be uh, a few minutes longer than the actual movie. So there you go, buddy. I Did it just for you. Just just to make you happy. Um, with that being said, it is about time for us to get out of here. So let's go around and see what everyone's been doing lately. Uh, Court, what you do recently podcast-wise and what you got coming? Uh, we just wrapped up recording a Roger Corman low-budget shitfest of a sci-fi film that's going to be released right after we're done recording here. Um, that was Forbidden World. Previously to that, we did the amazing Yoro horror flick um, Devil's Nightmare with a guest in studio that it just happened to be her favorite uh, horror film. And so it was like a mutual friend of Matt and I's that we thought would be great to have guest in uh Got really great response. Everybody really seemed to like her and think she was funny, particularly when she kept telling Matt to fuck off. So if you haven't heard that Devil's Nightmare episode and you're a fan of abusing Matt, you might want to check that one out. Um, did a couple of recordings for uh, Bullshit Artists with Boz and got a decent enough response with that that I think we're going to continue. So that's going to be recording again soon within like a week or so. And that should be out shortly after uh, it's done recorded because it's just basically him and I chatting about whatever the fuck we feel like, and then we put it out. So that's mostly... I've been doing a lot of uh, political commentaries and impeachment watches with Darren on his show, um, so I'll submit the floor to him now. Yeah, we're going to have to do another one of those soon. They're getting ready to go on Christmas break, so that that might be a good time. Yeah, it's a good um, demarcation point. There's been a lot of stuff happening so fast, though, it's hard to keep up with all of it. It is. Hours and hours. I think... Uh, Wednesday uh, or thir Wednesday or Thursday, there was over seven hours of testimony. Yeah, and there's so much shit in that testimony that we could do multiple episodes about too. Yeah, so it's it's going to be interesting. Uh, along those lines, I uh, should be doing a pre UK election special with many of our friend uh, Kit Power. They're having a pretty big election mid-December and uh, got some UK listeners so I'm trying not to be very so American and only talk about America yeah because the UK uh, is just as fucked up as we are right now they've yeah they've got you know slightly more charming Trump and Boris Johnson over there and there's a lot of similarities and oh. I'm gonna say it that. Boris Johnson looks uglier throwing it out there he looks uglier don't think that's possible, but not going to argue. Well, and he he tries. Uh, he literally messes up his hair before they turn on the cameras. So yeah, he it's like he's like goofy. Every day before he gets on there, he goes, I've got to channel my spirit animal, Josh Hartnett and the faculty. <laughs> you know, they, they had a debate recent uh, and it's not that show. Sorry. Um also coming up sometime around the time that this episode is dropping, I've got a psycho semantic cast with uh, Desmond of Desmond's Flicks. We did Assassination Nation. And 
good movie if you haven't checked it out, but it came out, what, 2018? So it's still relatively new. And uh, VD Clinic, we just did Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. That should be out any day. Awesome. Jim Jarmus is definitely an acquired taste for some folks. Yeah. So are you, know, Court. I liked The Dead Don't Die. I know a lot of people didn't, but I liked it. Yeah, I didn't hate it. <laughs> I haven't watched it because it's a 2019 movie, and uh, I don't watch 2019 movies. <laughs> you know? Um, as for me, uh, the last episode was for Kill the Cast was uh, Mask of the Red Death, and um, I was not very good on that, so don't listen to that. Too late. I was I was off my game. I was on new medication and uh you know, it didn't turn out too well, but uh it's out there. You can watch that um or listen to that whatever you want to do. Um but I was also I did a guest spot on 22 shots of Musa Horde uh, for Italian Horror Month covering three Italian films. Um listen to that if you want to hear me be very vulgar and berate a guy on that show named Jeremy for like 5 hours. <laughs> Um, I viciously and disturbingly say, uh, very, very messed up things, uh, at his expense. But I also review three movies, so there's that. Um, and then coming up, we just dropped Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space this past week, covering four Ultraman episodes, which is always fun. And then coming up after this episode comes out will be... Uh, actually, I guess everyone's going to get like two episodes this week for uh, they're going to get Atomic Age, Saucer Cast, and Kill the Cast, and they just got an underwater kaiju from outer space, so we got a lot popping. Um, but we have our uh, four year anniversary show coming out, uh, and of course, doing Italian horror to keep up with the other Italian uh, horror month shows, plus it being what we've started doing for our anniversary. We will be covering Cannibal Holocaust, uh, which Jay hates. Dun and- dun dun. I love, and I believe Kenneth loves. Um, I have a lot of love for Cannibal Holocaust. Um, even though there is that whole animals actually dying thing. Um, so we've got all that coming. With that being said, we're going to get out of here. Uh, we hope you enjoyed us. And uh, you're going to keep watching the skies with us as next time we'll do another movie which I don't know what it is. Could it be matinee? Only time will tell. <laughs> tell General Fogarty we've sent for Captain Hendry. He'll be here in a few minutes. Over. Roger. Over. Are there any newsmen there who can hear me? Over. Place is full up. Over. All right, fellas, here's your story. North Pole, November 3rd. Ned Scott reporting. One of the world's greatest battles was fought and won today by the human race. Here at the top of the world, a handful of American soldiers and civilians met the first invasion from another planet. A man by the name of Noah once saved our world with an ark of wood. Here at the North Pole, a few men performed a similar service with an ark of electricity. The flying saucer which landed here and its pilot have been destroyed, but not without casualties among our own meager forces. I would like to bring to the microphone some of the men responsible for our success. But as senior Air Force officer, Captain Hendry is attending to demands over and above the call of duty. Dr. Carrington, the leader of the scientific expedition, is recovering from wounds received in the battle. Good for you, Scotty. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, 
I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the skies. If you enjoyed this show, then make sure you check out the other great shows on the Legion Podcast Network, like Cinema PsyOps, Cinema Beef, Devour the Podcasts, Duncan and Bo Come Correct, Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, Friday the 13th, Get Slayed, The Hell Ming Power Hour, Hello, This is the Doom Show, Hero Hero Ghost Show, Kill the Cast, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry Hates Action, Legion After Dark, Metal Health, Obsessive Cinema, Discourse, Pick Six Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Which Versus the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found.